Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast exists because of the paid subscribers at DecodingTV.com. If you're enjoying what we do here, check out DecodingTV.com and sign up to be a member. You get ad-free episodes, bonus exclusives, and a couple other things as well. Thanks so much to the folks at DecodingTV.com for making this show possible. Hi there, I'm Pug. I'm also in the superhuman law division. Oh, I'm I'm Jennifer Walters. I made you guys a welcome basket. <laughs> oh! It's got some office supplies to get you started, snacks, and a map to the best bathroom for pooping. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I am David Chen. I'm Siddhanta Dlaka. Today on this podcast, we're going to be talking about She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, Episode 2, Superhuman Law. But before we get to that, we actually wanted to revisit an earlier entry in the Marvel franchise, The Incredible Hulk, 2008 Louis Leterrier movie starring Edward Norton. And uh, there are reasons why we wanted to revisit it, because it's pretty relevant to this episode of She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. Uh, and we hope you had a chance to check it out. And if not, it's okay. We're going to talk through some of the major plot points. But you can find more episodes of this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, but you can support this podcast over at DecodingTV.com and email us at DecodingTV at gmail.com. So, Siddhanth, why don't we get into it? Uh, as I mentioned, we want to open every one of our She-Hulk recap episodes with a general topic. And this week, it's going to be The Incredible Hulk. Um, now. Can you take us back a little bit, Siddhanth, to when you saw this for the first time? Like, when did you first see this movie? I, I saw it in theaters when it came out. I did as well. The year was 2008. I was 16 years old. I had, you, could, you all can do the math on that. Uh, I had, That makes you 45 years old, I think, right? Is close enough. Correct? Yep. Um, I had no idea about any of the, uh, the shared universe stuff that was on the horizon. Uh, I barely knew who or what the Avengers were. So uh, suffice it to say, I had my mind blown by the absolute final scene of this movie. But uh, we'll, we'll get to that. We have to start at the beginning uh, before we get to the end. But it was sort of a, a revelation to me at the time. Mm. I will say for me, watching The Incredible Hulk for the first time, um, it, it felt very much a reaction to the Ang Lee Hulk movie. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe actually Kevin Feige, who was involved in the making of The Incredible Hulk, um, saw it as such as well. You know, like that it was, uh, that movie really was not kind of what people were thinking of or expecting when it came to a, a superhero film. And and this is kind of a way to undo that. And uh, so I couldn't, I could never really separate it as a reaction to that movie. Um, but I remember watching The Incredible Hulk for the first time and being quite disappointed with it. Um, specifically, the final third mm -hmm. felt pretty messy. Uh, but it was a joy to go back and revisit it and kind of see what was good about it and see what was bad about it. So, Siddhanta Dlaka, let's dive into The Incredible Hulk. Um, 
we recently rewatched this movie to celebrate She-Hulk episode two. And I want to ask you, what were your overall thoughts on this viewing of the film? You know, final battle aside, which has been a problem with Marvel for a very long time, it seems. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would going back because the last time I saw it was maybe, I don't know, three years ago or something like that. Uh, but this time I was struck by how different it feels from all of the current Marvel stuff. And by current, I mean like the last decade of Marvel stuff. Um, you know, every time uh, the tension or the drama wasn't cut by a joke, uh, I found myself pleasantly surprised. Um, because What's course, interesting that- is that the humor in this movie feels extremely actually out of place, I would argue. <laughs> like there are some funny moments, but they feel like very weird compared to like humor is a very much core to the DNA of the modern Marvel films, you know, like um, people undercutting serious moments with jokes and quips and one-liners that happens all the time now. But like when it happened in this movie, it was like, Ooh, that's feels like not really quite right. You know? Yeah. It feels very much like a product of the two thousands in terms of um, the, the operatic and to an extent unapologetic nature of superhero movies at the time, whether or not they were good, uh, you could expect something that, um, you know, had like this, you know, blaring orchestral score and um, that, you know, it wasn't, you know, uh, a joke fest every five seconds. Totally. I enjoyed this movie a lot more than I remembered, you know, and I think it's because of what you described, which is that it does feel really different than a lot of the Marvel stuff we've gotten before. Um and at the same time, it's also fascinating to consider what they carried over from this movie, right? There's mm-hmm. like a couple elements that they carried over. Uh, obviously, Emil Blonsky, um, both the actor and the character, but uh, Thaddeus Ross, mm-hmm. uh, played by William Hurt. You know, this I, I had honestly completely forgotten, to be honest with you, that he was in this movie. And he became a core part of the MCU. He appeared in multiple MCU movies afterwards. Um, so, yep, go ahead. Yeah, the uh, the first movie he shows up in after The Incredible Hulk in 2008 is Captain America Civil War, eight years later, which is when they finally decided, okay, we can, you know, still use the stuff from that movie. And there's, you know, one small reference to it in The Avengers, where Mark Ruffalo says, uh, the last time I was in New York, I kind of broke Harlem, uh, which is what happens at the end of this movie. But apart from that, um, you know, it it never really felt like they were bringing this movie forward into the rest of the MCU, certainly not tonally, um, but, you know, of course, different actor, a completely different appearance for the Hulk, um, not just because it's a different actor, but like a different approach to designing the Hulk. Um, But yeah, it feels so tonally dissonant from the rest of the Marvel Universe. And I'm not saying that as a complaint, uh, especially now, all these years later, when we're kind of craving something that breaks that mold. Um, but even if you go back and look at the original Iron Man from 2008, uh, that kind of tone has sort of stuck because you have the very, you know, quippy Tony Stark dialogue in this, you don't have as much of that. And what little bits of humor you do have aren't so much, you know, quips and dialogue based as they are like, you know, small little character things like, uh, when they're driving the cab in New York and, um, Bruce Banner's heart rate monitor starts increasing, like small little things like that. Yeah, yeah. 
I would say that one of my favorite parts about this movie is how it looks. You know, it, yeah. it, it looks like a normal movie. Um, <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is it has the normal amount of dynamic range. Mm-hmm. Uh, the colors pop. This is not true of all Marvel films. Mm-hmm. Uh, see your colleague Patrick Willem's video essay about this topic. But yeah, like uh, it's like, oh, wow, high contrast and like kind of kind of gritty film. I think it was probably made on film is my guess. You it know? was. But um it looks great, like a normal action movie with some horror sci-fi elements to it. it does get very campy at times. Yeah. Um, but I, I like the way it looks and I like how much it feels like a just a conventional movie that doesn't really have that many tie-ins with the rest of the universe. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, because it was still kind of laying the foundation for stuff they hadn't fully figured out yet. Um, so going back all these years later you start to find these connections like Captain America and the rest of the Avengers and all that. But uh, yeah, at the time it was more concerned with, you know, just being a movie unto itself. And the only thing that really feels like it's connected is, you know, once again, the final scene, which really feels like it was meant to be a post-credit sequence. But I don't think very many people stuck around for the post-credit scene in the first Iron Man because that for for younger listeners, that wasn't really a thing people would do. Like sitting <laughs> mm-hmm, through the credits, mm-hmm. no, no way, no chance. Yeah. Um, but but and you know, like you said, the the look of it is really alluring, and you know, you you can sort of break that down to like, well, you know, they used to shoot on film back then, and now it's digital. But I wouldn't say it's as simple, just because you know you can achieve that sort of textured, high contrast look with digital as well. It's just that Marvel's workflow, as Patrick explains in his video, has become this very standard thing where they, you know, the the amount of color correction they do or do not do uh, leads to this sort of flat, low contrast look. Whereas, you know, the work done on this, whatever process they used in post, um, yields this very vibrant uh, fabric. You know, you you get an immediate sense of it, uh, not just like during the opening montage, but, you know, when you see Bruce Banner in Brazil, um, you you almost feel like the heat radiating off the factory and the environment. And and Mm. it's a movie with a real... There's a lot of texture, you know, a lot of texture to the movie. Yeah, It's a movie with a real sense of place always, like whether it's raining, whether they're, you know, on the streets of New York, whether they're in a forest. Um, It it very rarely feels like it was shot. I don't want to say it rarely feels like it was shot on a stage, but it doesn't feel like they shot it on a stage with the intention of making these decisions later. So Mm -hmm. whether they're Mm -hmm. shooting on location or um, in a studio space, you can tell, you know, that uh, the lighting and the design and all the decisions are sort of geared towards grounding you in like a, a tangible space. Yes, I, I would agree that there is some CG in the movie and some of it is pretty rough. I'm yeah. not going to lie about that. But I would agree with you that for the most part, it feels like they went on location. They actually shot on places. They actually shot in actual physical places, not on the volume. You know, like all these things are true. It's also interesting to reflect on some of the things that this movie has that Marvel films don't really have anymore. Um, here's a couple of them. Uh, one of them is any hint of sex. You know, mm-hmm. like Marvel movies don't really have that anymore. Whereas like mm-hmm. there is this awkward scene in this movie where they almost um, have sex and it's, it becomes like an awkward joke. But it's like, oh, wow, like that probably wouldn't even happen in most modern Marvel films. Right. Yeah. 
um, which is kind of a bummer because I think you know movies should deplay, you know depict the full panoply of of human experience, and uh, we don't get that with Marvel. I'm not saying there should be sex scenes or anything. I'm just saying like romance, you know, something in in uh, is missing from a lot of modern Marvel movies. Yeah, um, and not just the presence of romance, but the way it's shot. Um, because you know, in the moments where Bruce first uh, lays eyes on Betty after years and years in hiding. It feels like time kind of stands still. Um, you know, the first time their eyes meet in the rain, then the moment where they're both, you know, lying down in their separate beds and looking up at the ceiling, the way right. that the way it's framed and cut together is like you can feel that there is a connection between them and also something standing in their way, like just through the aesthetics. It doesn't take you know, someone putting it into words for you to understand it. And and the music is also a big part of that too. The other thing I would say is I think this movie is also much more violent and brutal than a lot of modern Marvel films. Um, for sure. Specifically with what happens to Emil Blonsky's character. There's like some body horror elements to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but just like when Emil Blonsky gets completely annihilated by the Hulk <laughs> uh, and he's in the hospital bed, it's like, ooh, this is like a violent, brutal world that this movie has created. And it's just rare to see that these days in the MCU. So... Those were a couple things that stuck out to me about like, oh, like remember when movies used to be this way and and a little bit more risky and distinct? Uh, mm-hmm. What Marvel has been able to accomplish is very admirable. I'm not saying like the new way is uh, objectively worse. I'm just saying it's different. And uh, it used to be more distinctive, I think, than it yeah. is today. So. Yeah, and another thing uh, that was also noticeable, this is probably the only Marvel film where the U.S. government and not some fictitious agency, like the actual U.S. government, the actual U.S. military are the bad guys. Mm. And there is, of course, you know, this wider conversation uh, about, you know, uh, Marvel Studios ties to the U.S. military, which they're not alone in that. Like a lot of Hollywood productions have DOD production agreements. That's the Department of Defense. And because of that, they're, you know, meant to portray uh, the U.S. military in if not in a positive light, then at least not in a negative light. But this seems to be the only one where uh, the actual real-life U.S. military are the ostensible villains until, you know, Emil Blonsky, you know, takes that role towards the end. But yeah, they're unambiguously like the bad guys when this movie begins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't we talk about some of the kind of main arcs or highlights of the film, right? I, I remember texting you when I was watching this movie uh, or after I watched it, I was like the first 30 to 40 minutes of this movie rips. I actually really like the first 30 to 40 minutes because basically what they do in this movie is they do all the origin story stuff in the credits, which mm-hmm. I actually thought was pretty cool um, because I think they kind of assumed that you had seen the Hulk, uh, the other Hulk movie. And so they're yeah. like, we don't need to go over that because it wasn't even that long before this movie yep. came out. Um I think is what the, the Ang Lee Hulk was 2002, right? Three. 2003. Yeah. So it was like five years before. So they're like, okay, you probably already seen that movie. So like, we don't need to go over all the origin story. So we'll put it on the credits. Now, having read the backstory behind this movie, uh, apparently there was like a bunch more origin story stuff that was filmed and they didn't know exactly where to put it. I actually think it was a smart move to put it in, in the opening credits, dispense with it. They do cover it via dialogue later on, but mm-hmm. felt like a smart move to me. What did you think, Sadan? Yeah, uh, when I first watched it, 
look, I didn't, you know, know anything about the ins and outs of like, you know, production and contracts and reboots and this and that. To me, it was just, okay, they, they made a Hulk movie five years ago and now they're making another Hulk movie. A different actor, sure. I've I've seen like five different Batmans. That makes sense to me. Um, and so uh, just, it, it was just sort of a given, you know, back then that, uh, yeah, okay, they're making another one. We don't have to sit and like pick through like the connections and like, is it technically a sequel? Is it this? Is it that? Because like you said, just five years prior, you know, I'd seen the other Hulk movie and um, I just, you know, I didn't have words for it at the time. I just took this as like sort of a soft reboot because the Ang Lee Hulk movie ends with uh, Bruce Banner hiding out in the Amazon. And this one, you know, opens with him hiding out in Brazil. And so it could conceivably be like, you know, a, a sequel to it. Um, so again, like, you know, with the assumption that you know how the Hulk became the Hulk, um, you know, the the movie, you know, it doesn't hold your hand through it. It kind of just, you know, condenses it for the people who don't know, like, yeah, hey, experiment gone wrong. <laughs> and um, yeah, and you open with, you know, his his journey being set up as being about, you know, whether or not he can control this side of himself, right. whether or not he can, you know, quote unquote, cure um, his hulkiness. Yeah. I would say, honestly, most of my problems with this movie come in the last third. Like the yeah. first two thirds, I actually really like. The first third of the movie, he's kind of out there at this uh, Brazilian bottling plant, mm-hmm. um, trying to avoid becoming the Hulk, working with this guy named Mr. Blue mm-hmm. to uh, engineer some kind of solution so that he can not be Hulk anymore and kind of go back and, and be with Betty, I think is kind of the sense yeah. that we get. Um, there is a fairly, but there's a fairly hilarious moment when Thaddeus Ross is like, Oh, somebody um, uh, drank some soda and got some gamma radiation in their blood. And he's like, where is that bottling plant? And it's like, really? Like that's, that's the thing you go to not like, um, where was the convenience store where he bought the <laughs> bottle? Where was the uh, who's delivered it to him? You know, who touched it before they delivered it to him? You know, like to be fair, uh, to be fair, it seems like you know uh, the assumption is that the blood was in the bottle and yes. the bottle was sealed. But I found the he funnier really, he really li- put that together real fast in like yeah. three seconds. So, I yeah. found the funnier line to be like, "Find me the the one white guy at that bottling plant." <laughs> Because uh, like, oh man, Brazil, surely there can't be any white people in South America. Um, <laughs> Tell me if they've seen a white gangly dude at the <laughs> bottling plant. Yeah, anyway. But the whole chase sequence and then the whole like Hulk coming out uh, and yeah. for the first time you see him and like he's in darkness and night vision. Like oh, That's all really well done, I found. Like yeah. I just thought it was like a great chase sequence. Again, it looks like they did it practically. It doesn't look like they did it on the volume. Like it looks like just really exhilarating sort of classical action filmmaking. Yeah. And Um, even for the bits where, you know, when he does eventually Hulk out and the Hulk CG, you know, it's not great in most of this movie, but at the same time, um, you know, it really gives you a sense of how much all the other elements work in tandem to either disguise it or complement it. Because the first time you see the Hulk, you know, he kind of, it's just a close up of his face popping out of the shadows And, you know, if you were to, you know, pause that moment, of course, like the Hulk would look like completely uncanny and, you know, quote unquote, unrealistic. But it's such a well put together scene that, you know, the lack of finesse when it comes to 
CGI, whatever the reasons were at the time, whether it was the technology, whether things were rushed through, probably not as much as now, but you know, all the other elements worked much better in tandem than they do than they do today. Uh, because you know, if you have um, a Hulk that looks like that now, nothing else around him is going to look much better either. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I know what you're saying. I, you're, you're basically saying like there was a kind of cohesiveness to a lot of the look of this film that sometimes isn't found in, in modern Marvel films. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason. Uh, mm-hmm. The vision behind it, the the way that Marvel works, its visual effects workflow, you know, like any any number of things can, yeah. uh, can cause it. Something as simple as how a scene is lit on set. Whereas, you know, nowadays you might have scenarios where those decisions aren't being made on set at all. Right, right. So big fight at the bottling plant. It's like just a bunch of amazing moments in the fight, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, Emil Blonsky shooting a dog. It's just like, oh, that's a very efficient way. Not not a, like, not a happy moment. It's just like efficient characterization. It's like, oh, you get that he's kind of an asshole. Yeah, you know, take like that, right Blake Snyder. Yeah. And um, just uh, some really tense moments with like, Hulk pushing this gigantic, gigantic tank through, you know, the floor and then like people being crushed and diving out of the way and, mm. you know, just feeling like you're just overwhelmed by this thing. You have no idea what it is. It's, um, it's really well done. So mm-hmm. I, I like this whole kind of chase sequence and it's at the end of a chase sequence. So it's like, yeah. it's a really solid chase sequence. And then like this big action scene and it's like, oh, wow. Like, um, at this point, I'm like really in this movie. I'm really like, oof. Like, yeah. maybe people, this this did not deserve to get as reviewed as poorly as it did back in the yeah. day. You know, that was my reaction. Yeah. Um, um, at at this point in the movie. Yeah, because um, just looking at it as a whole, I think, you know, until that very final battle, I think I would say I like really like this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So then he kind of uh, travels home, right? Mm-hmm. Returns to Culver City, reunites with with Betty. I don't know about you. I felt a little bit bad for Ty Burrell, uh, who's yeah. in this movie. She kind of just gets completely jettisoned almost immediately because Betty is clearly like very in love with mm-hmm. Bruce Banner. Still, um, I love I like their dynamic, but like the Betty role played by Liv Tyler is pretty thankless in this movie. You know, she's kind of damsel in distress that just loves her man, uh, doesn't really get that much to do, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and, and and for that reason, this movie does feel kind of like in many ways a relic of. The movie was made in 2008, but it feels like a relic of kind of 90s, uh, mm-hmm. 80s and 90s action filmmaking in that way. Um, yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I love how committed Liv Tyler is to it because every moment she's playing like she could burst into tears because of, you know, clearly all the stuff that the character has gone through. And um, another thing I really like about the movie is, and I guess, you know, every point we make ends up becoming a criticism about modern Marvel but everyone in this movie feels like a real person and not just like the main characters, but like, you know, every minor character who shows up as well, whether it's the guy Betty's dating, whether it's Stanley, the the pizza shop owner, I there's, there's no origin, mm. no backstory explained. There's just like, you know, okay, so he clearly knows both of them and has known both Betty and Bruce for a while. And you can tell just by, you know, the affection they have, um, for each other that okay there's a little bit of history there and it it feels so so familiar and and you know in the script i guess it becomes this thing of like okay there's a bit of downtime here you know bruce is no longer on the run there is some respite 
And you you really feel it because he gets to sit down and have a conversation with someone who knows him, who understands him. Uh, even if, you know, we've never seen this person before and we're never going to see him again. There is a sense of comfort that kind of radiates. And it reminds me of two scenes in particular. Uh, one is a scene in The Americans, and we're not going to talk too much about it because you haven't seen the show yet. But it's when um, the lead characters, Philip and Elizabeth, meet someone from their past, uh, again, no details, played by Frank Langella. And it's the first time Frank Langella has showed up in the show. But these characters have decades and decades and decades of history. And you can you can tell immediately from the moment they greet each other, the playfulness, the warmth, that, okay, these are people, you believe immediately, people who have known each other for a very long time and know each other intimately. The other scene it reminds me of is the diner scene in Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. Um, you're talking to like the world's biggest Dexter Jetster fan here. Uh, because, so not only did I rewatch the movie quite recently. It's a, it's a, it's a huge club. All three of you are in All it. three of us. It's me, Patrick, and I think my brother. Um, <laughs> but I watched the movie recently, enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. And But again, like I, I firmly believe that Dexter Jetster is one of the most human characters in the prequels just because of the way he behaves around obi-wan and humanizes him in the process so stanley serves a similar function like you you get this sense of bruce banner's past even though we don't see that past we don't see you know there's no flashbacks really to his life before becoming the hulk um but you get you get a sense of the life that he's lost the normalcy that he's lost I would agree that uh, old man in this movie in restaurant is the Dexter Jetster of <laughs> The Incredible Hulk. Agreed completely. Yeah, put it on the poster. Yeah. Um, so they are, you know, they reunite. And here's another thing that was shocking to me was I actually thought that uh, Emil Blonsky was a very credible and solid villain mm-hmm. until the very end of this movie. Um, Mm -hmm. because basically like he has a conversation with Ross where he's like, I've never, he's like clearly in awe of the incredible Hulk. Like he's clearly amazed by him. And he's like, you know, I, I wish I could move like that. And also like Tim Roth is like great casting because, Mm -hmm. um, he's a bit of an older gentleman. Like you don't expect someone that old kind of to be, um, in the field, like doing, uh, what he's doing, like just doing the badass stuff that he's doing in this movie necessarily. Um, and this is brought up in the movie. He's like, "Why? Why are you still in the field?" And he's like, "Oh, I, I like it to be where the action. I like to be where the action is, you mm-hmm. know." And so I'm like, "This is actually like a pretty solid motivation for why this guy would want the super soldier serum, and like why he wanted like become the abomination. Like that actually all made sense to me in a way that I don't feel like it did when I first watched this movie. But then I got to the end, and I'm like, okay, it just gets. Now I remember why I have a bad." association with this movie you know is yeah. because of that that stuff yeah i like the one exchange um, between him and ross where i think ross assumes that he's 45 but he's actually 39 uh <laughs> but that's not left hanging as a joke ross's response to that is takes a toll on you um mm, and then again yeah. just that one little exchange gives you uh so much about these characters and what they do and you know another reason that why blonsky might want something that is physically invigorating to him like the super soldier serum yeah yeah uh anything else we want to cover about this 
second act of the movie before we get to kind of the final part of the movie where we had our, most of our problems. Um, oh, uh, there is no. this big action scene at the school mm-hmm, that's like mm-hmm. pretty pretty solid. Yeah. Um, I don't know why Blonsky is so confident. <laughs> you know, he like walks straight up to Hulk right at the end and Hulk kind of kicks him or whatever and yeah. breaks every bone in his body. And it's like, did you really need to taunt him like that? Like, yes, uh, he he just got really overconfident with a super soldier serum, basically, mm-hmm. right? And he's mm-hmm. like, I can take, is that all you got? It's like, dude, you're still dealing with like a force, like the likes of which this planet has never seen before. So maybe <laughs> just take it easy. Uh, but yeah, that that felt a little bit silly to me. Like, w- would Blonsky really be that dumb? But I guess it's just the beginning of him being really stupid for the rest yeah. of, the, of the movie. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was, a, it was a cool action scene, and there's some cool ideas in it. The idea, like Hulk, kind of um, shredding those like so- the, the idea of using sonic weaponry mm-hmm. against Hulk is really cool. Hulk, like, kind of destroying those vehicles is really cool. Um, there's just a lot of a lot of cool cool ideas, cool action ideas uh, in that sequence. So, um, so let's talk about the final act. I mean, I think it really kicks off when he meets Mister Blue, which. Yeah. Bold move to introduce a character in the third act that <laughs> we don't really know anything about and but whose actions are critical to the final act of the movie yeah. happening, right? Yeah, I think and that's I, maybe the one thing in this movie that kind of feels like sequel setup, um, you know, especially mm. given what happens to Mr. Blue at the end. Um, interesting, like Reservoir Dogs kind of naming the... Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, he gets a bit of uh, Banner's irradiated blood in his brain and is, you know, he gets all mega mind. I think it's actually, is it Banner's blood? I think I'm pretty sure it's Abomination's blood that he gets in his head. Oh, maybe, maybe. Yeah. No, because um, I think he is injecting uh, Banner's blood. Some of the stuff that he has. Oh yeah, yeah, on. yeah. He's injecting Banner's blood into Abomination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And then some. I don't. Okay, I don't remember if it's Abomination's blood or Banner's blood that gets into his head. But yeah, yes. basically some gamma blood, yeah. and yeah. you know his head starts getting bigger. And in the comics, uh, that character is a villain named the Leader. His whole deal is you know big head, big brain, very smart, and also <laughs> green skin, if I recall. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised if he showed up again at some point. <laughs> yeah. But then essentially what happens is that uh, they actually capture Banner, Mm -hmm. which is a shock that they're able to do that. That's like actually a genuinely shocking moment. Um, But then at this point, Tim Roth's character, Blonsky, is just completely unhinged. Like he's just making dramatic decision after dramatic decision that doesn't really make any sense. And Mm -hmm. you you could attribute it to the super soldier serum, which is what I think She-Hulk episode two does. Mm -hmm. But uh they experiment with uh banner's blood to inject it into blonsky and he becomes the abomination and there's some you know cheesy moments where he's like i don't know if it's gonna work it would be an abomination you know like yeah and it's it's like okay that's pretty campy and i i I don't hate it i don't hate it so yeah um, this was still back when uh you couldn't just give superheroes and supervillains you know comic book names you had to kind of you know, go around it in like a, a weird way where um, like even in Batman Begins, um, you have, uh, I think it's the gangster Carmine Falcone who keeps referring to 
um, Dr. Crane as Scarecrow because he's like scared of something. And like, it's not just a mantle that he takes on. He's not like, I'm Scarecrow. It's, you know, you, you have to find roundabout ways to like justify the comic book stuff. Yeah. So then they have a big fight and mm-hmm. the fight is okay. You know, it looks like it's shot on a set like in a back lot somewhere where it's like on one street mm-hmm. um, and you're just watching kind of two big CGI dudes fight each other. And I, I, I thought I, I didn't love it because I, I will say I liked the idea that they need to let Bruce Banner go. Like that's a cool idea. You've been trying to capture him this whole time and now you need to let him go. Like that's a cool reversal mm-hmm. and seeing Ross struggle with that is kind of interesting. But the thing that's sad is that the abomination in this movie doesn't really represent any idea, yes. right? He doesn't really represent evil or I, I guess he represents like, I want more power for myself. Like that's kind of, mm-hmm. th- that, that's the idea that he represents. But like at that point in time, I'm pretty sure Blonsky is, you know, completely wasted on this super serum. Like uh, he's not even really making decisions of his own volition at that point. So you're kind of like, you know, we are meant to believe he's not operating under his normal will. So it's mm-hmm. like when what Bruce Banner is fighting is not even really what Blonsky wants. It's just what this kind of chemical is. And it's like, okay, that's not very interesting dramatically, I think. Yeah, because even though... And, and visually, because it's just the two CG dudes fighting each other. But go ahead, what are you going to say? Yeah, no, even though Blonsky is born kind of from the same blood or the same radiation, uh, he would make a much better Captain America villain and a much better like Thor villain because those movies to an extent, you know, deal with power and how to wield it and the temptation to power. And that's Blonsky's whole deal. Like, he he covets power. Um, Whereas, at the other end of that coin, Bruce Banner isn't someone, you know, who is ever tempted by power. He, his whole deal in this movie is, you know, trying to get rid of this part of himself. And I guess we're supposed to, in some roundabout way, assume that, okay, him, you know, deciding to jump out of the plane is him embracing this ugly monstrous part of himself but it doesn't quite work as like a key moment of drama because it's not that different from the rest of the movie yeah because he's it's not like he's saying if i make this decision i will be the hulk forever there's no turning back this is the point of no return there's nothing established in the movie that makes this moment kind of a life or death decision or a make or break decision for him he would have made this same decision probably like at the beginning of the movie too. Um, Which is another reason why that whole final act, look, anyway, my eyes kind of glaze over the final act of this movie and of like the first Iron Man. Uh, But like in this one, especially, it doesn't feel like there's anything really at stake beyond like, you know, who can punch harder. And it is cool that the Hulk um, uses two halves of a cop car as like boxing gloves. Yes, that's but pretty awesome. But it's cool in like a very fleeting kind of way because nothing mm-hmm. else, you know, happens in the yeah. rest of the fight. Because again, there's nothing at stake there. There's no question of like, you know, how far is Banner going to go? Can he control this? Uh, even though at the very end, you have this moment where he's going to kill Blonsky and uh, Betty is like, no, and he stops. But like the, you I, know, I the rest... I thought be- the Betty-Hulk relationship was pretty interesting in this mm-hmm. movie. You know, it kind of recalls like King Kong, you know, um, that whole dynamic as well. But I, I would agree with you about like dramatically, it feels pretty inert this yeah. whole ending, and that's that's a bummer. And you're saying Blonsky desires power, but like to some degree, you know, he only desires power to do the job that has been set up for him. You know, which is to stop the whole. Like he's like, 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes. He in the in that process he gets corrupted, but it's mm-hmm. he's really just trying to do a job, you know. Yeah. Until the very end of the movie. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I I would agree that it's it's just kind of nonsense by the end, you know. Like you're watching CG creatures fight each other, and for reasons that it's like not really clear. And the ultimate disappointment, I think, is Siddhartha Daka. We have had dozens of Marvel films at this point. And we had this incredible Hulk origin story. We had two Hulk movies. Mm-hmm. And my understanding of the Incredible Hulk, and you tell me if I'm wrong, because I, I don't think I've read as much of the comics as you, probably, is that like the idea of the Incredible Hulk like controlling his anger is core to his per- like is core to that character. There's two sides to that person. And like mm-hmm. the it's kind of like a Jekyll Hyde situation where it's like, oh, this is part of me and it manifests in this way. And like controlling my anger is controlling this other creature inside me. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh inclusive of this movie, we have not yet gotten a good depiction mm-hmm. of that core idea. Um You're right. there's that moment in the Avengers when he's like, I'm always angry. I'm like, okay, could have fooled me. You know, like I didn't <laughs> That that was not set up either in the rest of the Avengers or even in this movie. You know, like the anger part was just has always been the most interesting part to me of that character. Yeah. And has not been done any justice by any of the films or or TV shows. And that's been a huge bummer. And and, and honestly, the best depiction of it would be Ong Lee's Hulk, Mm -hmm. um, which itself has other massive problems. Yeah. Um, uh, I was going to say, I haven't. I haven't seen the 2003 uh, Hulk in a while, and I believe we're going to talk about it uh, as we get further into the podcast. But uh, if memory serves, it's the only live action depiction, uh, at least since like, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, that um, has anything to say in terms of what the Hulk is as it relates to Bruce Banner as a character. And, you know, you have bits and pieces uh, in the MCU you know, Hulk stories where it's like, oh, you know, gotta control this thing. But, you know, it, it's fun when it comes out and, you know, and then like the most interesting Hulk stuff happens off screen between uh, Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. Uh, this thing of like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I learned to I learned to control the Hulk. Yeah. Uh, how? Oh, just uh, don't worry about it. It, it was between movies. Because that is, right. again, like the most fundamental part of this character is these two, you know, yeah, warring parts of himself. And the, uh, the most we get, honestly, of that whole journey is in She-Hulk Attorney at Law. No joke. Yeah. And so, you get references to it, which is the yeah. most that they can do at this stage, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 So uh, any other thoughts about the Incredible Hulk? Uh, ki- kind of interesting, by the way. At the time, it was like pretty mind-blowing, the idea that you'd have these post-credit sequences after Iron Man and uh, the Incredible Hulk, and they kind of tie into each other. It's like, ooh, cool, interesting, you know? Yeah. Um, never really got that before, um, so that was cool. Um, Did but, I forgot to I forgot to sit through the credits this time? Is there an actual like post credit sequence, or it's just like brought forward to the very end of the movie? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's the one I was referring to. The one yeah, with Tony yeah, Stark. Yeah. I don't okay. know if there's a post post credit sequence. Yeah, because I think they figured yeah. that you know if they want to do this whole universe building thing that they need to do it in the movies because, you know, now, you know, uh, everyone sits through, you know, every sort of, you know, vaguely franchise-related thing to see, uh, yeah. you know, if there's something more to come. But but then, uh, they, then they, you know, they came upon the ultimate solution, which is put one in mid-credits and also post-credits. 
Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> put the world building one mid credits and put the kind of fun, yeah, si- slight one post credits. That's, yeah, that's what they that, that I think was the uh, that, that I think was like set up by the Joss Whedon Avengers movie in 2012, which I believe yeah. was shot after the movie premiered. But th- that's a whole different story. Uh, but yeah, so it, it you know because just a few months earlier, I believe this came out in June or July of 2008, and it was in early May that uh, you know audiences first got a taste of. Um, Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark. Uh, and to see him show up here, you know, so blatantly as like the closing image of this movie, it really made you feel like, oh, okay, so this is... Because it was like the first major superhero crossover in movies, this movie. Yeah. Uh, because prior to that, like at most you had either these, you know, jokey references or you had, I think it's in... Spider-Man 2, you have Thomas Jane's Punisher like in the background of one shot. It's a very blink and you miss it kind of thing. This was the first time that they were saying, hey, stay tuned. These things are actually connected to one another. Yeah. Uh, and this was also like a ver- at a very critical time in Marvel's history. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had not, you know, they had had some movies before where they were like... Uh, advisors or tangentially involved but like you know as you probably are aware they had sold off their rights to like all these different studios of all the different characters and they're like hey what if we try making the movies ourselves and so um that's what they did uh and they needed at least either iron man or incredible hulk to succeed in order Mm -hmm. to justify further investment in it and this movie didn't do that great it made 265 million dollars worldwide um but Iron Man was a huge success, and mm-hmm. now we live in the very transformed world that we live in today. Um, so uh, it's interesting to just reflect on like the one that didn't do as well. Uh, but nonetheless, based on She-Hulk episode due this week that we're talking about on Decoding TV, still had a massive impact on the MCU. You know, yeah, who's 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 kind of template events, legacy, whatever continues to reverberate. You know, so anyway. Those are our thoughts on The Incredible Hulk. Definitely way better than I remember, but also the ending made me remember why I soured on this movie. Like the last third just was really rough. Yeah. Um, but I appreciated it just as much as I didn't appreciate about this movie, rewatching mm. it again. So, yeah, you, you really uh, get a sense in some moments, you know, especially in the first hour, that there's something going on emotionally. There's a relationship between the camera and the editing and the characters. And yeah. Low bar because that's like the the basics of cinema, but um, <laughs> this is this is this is where we are now when it comes to a lot of like mainstream Hollywood. Indeed. Um, so that's one of our topics this week on Decoding TV, and I do want to point out that um, we're going to try to open every episode by talking about something that's not just the episode of She-Hulk: Attorney at Law. Next week, we're going to be diving into a comic book run. Um, Sensational She-Hulk by John Byrne, Volume 1. Mm-hmm. I'll link to it in the show notes in the description, but that'll be our opening topic for next week's episode of this podcast. Uh, so if you want to join us for that, it should be a lot of fun. But uh, that is what is in store for you next week on the Decoding TV podcast, uh, which you can get wherever podcasts are available. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. 
Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right. This is Decoding TV. I'm David Chen with Sedanta Adlaka. Let's dive into episode two of She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. The title of this episode is Superhuman Law. As usual, Sedanta Adlaka, let's talk about overall thoughts. Uh, what do you think of this episode? Before we do that, <laughs> as promised, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, for those of you who uh, aren't watching this on video... I think Dave can explain what's going on here. Yes, uh, Siddhanth is taking out a bag of Cheetos and using chopsticks to extricate them. And you, you're eating a you're, he's eating a Cheeto next to the microphone now. He's using chopsticks. Okay, now okay. Mm-hmm. Here's the question, Siddhanth. Mm-hmm. Is all right. So you've eaten a couple of Cheetos, mm-hmm. and you need to take a break. So you you must insert the Cheetos back into the bag. Okay, yep. All right, and now now put the bag down. Mm-hmm. All right. So is the way you're putting them in there, you're just kind of just sticking them in there and they, they stay up of their own volition, you know, like pretty much. Uh, so I think like as you when you start out, um, the, the chopsticks aren't going to get lost in the bag just because they're resting like on and in between some of the Cheetos. Um Let's see if I make my way through the bag, there's a chance that the chopsticks will eventually, you know, go further down. They might get lost a bit. Yes. I have to say. First of all, my chopstick game has improved immensely, so I'm I'm thrilled with myself. But I feel like, you know, as as you know, as not messy as this is, as much as this is a solution, I feel like it robs you of a fundamental part of the experience, which is getting the Cheeto dust on your hands. And like Here's a question for you, Sadanth, mm-hmm. is what do you do when you get Cheeto dust on your hands? Um do you, you lick it off? Lick it off? I yeah. usually end up washing it. To be honest, I mean, with you. eventually, yeah, you don't just like lick it off and leave it there. But like, I go it, straight to the washing because I'm just like, I don't want to, you know, I don't know where my fingers have been. I don't, I don't want to uh... wash your hands before you eat. <laughs> but I, I don't necessarily do that for something like Cheetos, you know. Okay, look, here's the I thing: I expect my I'm... snacks to be like low, uh, low maintenance in terms okay. of how much cleanliness is involved. Look, I'm, I'm Indian. Like, we eat a lot of food with our hands. So it's kind of expected that you wash your hands before you eat, right? And so it, mm-hmm. it, it's just, a, it's a thing. Like, like for me, eating Cheetos is no different from eating like most other like Indian meals. Mm-hmm. So I think at the end of the day, you are mildly approving of uh, She-Hulk's way of eating Cheetos using... Yeah, uh, it's it's a novelty, whatever. Like I, it was fun for the two Cheetos that I ate just now, but I can't really see myself doing it long term. <laughs> 
Wow, then it was fun for an extremely short period of time, then it sounds like. It, it had a great yeah. moment in the sun, a.k.a. 10 seconds. Yeah. And, and now I made we're sure, back to... I made yeah. sure to order Chinese food last night, so I had an extra pair of chopsticks lying around as well. Wow. That's yeah. commitment I'm to this Really podcast. dedicated well, thank, to this bit. Thank you. Thank you for that experiment. We really appreciate mm-hmm. that, Sinan. So, overall thoughts on this episode of She-Hulk Attorney <laughs> at Law? Well, um, sort of the opposite of The Incredible Hulk, in that I liked it more as it went on. Um, I liked it more as we got into Emil Blonsky. Um, wasn't wasn't in love with like the I guess the first half or so of the episode. Um, but yeah, then yeah, I thought overall it was fine. Like it, it wasn't you know an episode that I disliked. It still feels like the show is laying the groundwork for what it's actually about. And I think finally next week we're gonna get a sense of like, oh okay, this is the real story of She Hulk. So yes. now I'm kind of waiting. All right, let's let's get started. But um, you know, I, I like where this episode goes in the second half. Yeah, uh, I thought it was perfectly enjoyable. Some very nice moments in it, and I was reading Miles McNutt's episodic medium newsletter, which is an excellent television newsletter, and mm-hmm. um, he was saying that originally all that Bruce Banner stuff in Mexico, like all the scenes with Bruce in Mexico, were originally in episode eight. And they got moved to episode one. And if that's the case, you have to imagine that all this stuff that we just saw in this episode was probably in an earlier version of the show, part of episode one. Like you can imagine there is no scene where she turns to the camera and says, okay, you're not going to be able to focus on this until we cover all the origin story stuff, which by the way, now knowing this information that I've just expressed is like a meta commentary on how Mm -hmm. the show was made, right? Like, yeah. I that, guess then my question would be, at what stage was it meant to be later in the show? Did they shoot it and then decide? Or was this like, you know, just as an early initial concept before they'd even written the episodes? Like, what if we do this later? No, maybe we should do it earlier for such and such reason. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they had shot it yet, or but I, I know it was either after they had written it or after it was shot. Like that, that. so it was like a relatively... Um, it wasn't like they were just in the room and kicking it around. Like it okay. was already like at a stage where... Uh, I actually think, honestly, what we see has evidence of that kind of tampering because um, this episode that we're watching, episode two, really feels like it should have been part of episode one because it helps to establish the status quo of the show. Mm -hmm. So you could kind of imagine a world where it opens up with Tatiana Maslany's character, Jennifer Walter, like in the courtroom and just a normal lawyer show and then she kind of hulks out and then all this stuff happens. And then you get to the Bruce stuff later. Like that would have been pretty interesting, uh, a pretty interesting way to approach it. And I think would have felt less disjointed than what we mm-hmm. see here. But the advantage of doing it the way they did it is to just hook all those MCU heads early, right? Like you get Bruce Banner early, you get people talking about the show. Uh, and then, but then what we're left with is in episode two, then we're dealing with all the stuff about like, what is the status quo of the show? You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's it's impossible for me not to think about that. Uh, but yeah, I thought it was it was solid. And honestly, seeing Emil Blonsky return, I didn't know that he was going to be in the episode prior to me watching the episode. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of the closest that the show has come to the MCU, or the closest the MCU has come to really reaffirming that that Incredible Hulk movie existed. I know you've <laughs> referenced like a couple of other things too, but. When Mark Ruffalo shows up, I think in the Avengers is the first time you see him, right? Like, I'm like, okay, so is he the same character? And I don't think they ever really explicitly say that he is, you know, like, 
they, they don't say like, oh, yes, remember Betty played by Liv Tyler? You know, like they don't think they do it. So like this is the first time where it's like, OK, that movie actually happened in this universe. Yes, Disney does not have the rights to it at this point. I don't think like I don't believe the movies on Disney Plus, but we're going to take it as a movie that happened in this universe. Yeah. Um, and there's also a very tongue in cheek, fourth wall breaking sort of reference to it as well, uh, which happens later in the episode where um you know, Bruce Banner's talking about how he's changed and he says, oh, I was literally a different guy. I'm literally a different person today. And then, which, yeah. and then um, Jen Walters looks at the camera and says, ha ha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and honestly, all the kind of meta stuff, I actually really like, you know, mm-hmm. in the show, it brings it, people have talked about how uh, Walters and um, and Deadpool are like kind of these characters that... Um, like address the camera they're kind of like some of the more most high profile canonical characters that address the camera mm-hmm. and uh i'm here for it i, I enjoy a good uh, meta trolling of the marvel cinematic universe uh even if it comes from marvel itself so like <laughs> uh, I, I, I like all that stuff so anyway um all right so let's let's talk about some of the stuff that happens in this episode um some fallout from what happened at the end of last episode with mm-hmm. uh titania uh, kind of a superpowered influencer who attacks his courtroom. David, they do confirm this week that uh, you were right last time. It is Titania. Oh, Titania. There you go. Yeah. And uh, there is a news story where it's like, she. it's kind of like a She-Hulk or a Chick-Hulk or whatever. And it reminded me of the fact that, kind of Easter egg, the Incredible Hulk movie, some gawking, interviewee on the news is also how the hulk got his name in that movie as well yeah um so that, that's how these characters are named is like if you are some rando bystander who's appearing on the news you could end up incidentally naming some of earth's greatest heroes i think is really uh what the take-home message is from this yeah i mean uh, the same thing happens in like the the modern superhero movie that kicked off this wave which is the original spider-man from 2002 where mm. he wants to go by the human spider but um, Bruce Campbell. It's says, some kind of the amazing Spider- Spider-Man. It's kind of a some kind of Spider-Man, you know. Boy, yeah. that man sure is super. <laughs> Nicely done. So, She-Hulk as a name is becomes widespread, and people are chanting her name by the time she gets to the bar, which is like, okay, well, that was fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she learns that she has lost her job because uh, the law firm that she's a part of doesn't want to take her. Uh, you, you use her in their cases because it's too much of a distraction. And this whole stuff with her, like interviewing for other jobs, like I really like this whole idea because it's like, she's someone who's trying to live a normal life mm-hmm. and she has these powers and it's a massive inconvenience, you know, for most people who are, who are superheroes in these shows, they already have uh, either committed their time to the military or they don't really have interesting lives or whatever. But she's like, no, I have a family I have a high-powered job, an office, and it would be really inconvenient if people knew you were a superhero, basically, right? So I love that part of it. Yeah. Um, There's also, I think the way they shot one of these bits was really interesting, where it's this kind of montage of her interviewing and being rejected at various jobs, where she's sitting in one spot, but the environment around her is changing, and the lighting around her is changing too. And um, I could be wrong about this, but it seems like, it's one of the many Marvel things shot against a green screen, but used 
for an, for a very interesting purpose because you know they swap out either the green screen or like the volume or whatever it is because the background around her is constantly changing but she is fixed in one place and as soon as the background changes the light around her changes as well and i thought it was a really fun way to like root us in her perspective um while you know showing us the passage of time as well it's a great shot i was wondering if they did it in camera somehow you know it um, seemed to be the case uh, yeah i'm not sure for clothing changes i gotta look at it cl- more closely but it, i think it, it was, was great... the same outfit yeah so 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 yeah it might, they might have done it in camera which would have been amazing by the way yeah. like that's that's really well done so anyway uh so she continues looking for a job and she's considering becoming a village swiss village mascot because she's <laughs> at her lowest of the low and did you spot some other headlines in that screenshot I did. There were a couple of Easter eggs in there um, on the side of that website. And it look, it seemed like a very clickbaity website. So you never know what's really going on or what isn't. But uh, there was a headline uh, or a news story that said, man fights with metal claws in bar brawl, which um, I don't know. Could that be a reference to someone? I, I can't recall any you know superheroes who have metal claws. Um mm. But uh, <laughs> there's also a reference to a giant statue of a man sticking out of the ocean, which is um, everybody's favorite, Tiamat the Eternal, you know. Um, but yes, the which, one, by the I'm, way, I'm I think it's the only acknowledgement we've gotten that the Eternals <laughs> happened in the MCU. Uh, probably for the best. Other than the movie The Eternals. Probably yeah. for the best. I really like that movie, but and anyway. I like, oh, oh, ooh, okay, we're going to talk about that at some point. No, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there's an ad for sneakers called Iron Man 3s, which I thought was really funny. Mm, mm, nice, <laughs> nice. Um, I like I like that the episode has all these little, like, Easter eggs and, like, these fun little references that aren't just about, like, hey, do you recognize this from the comics? Like, there's one, um, as soon as the episode opens, uh, when they're catching us up on what happened last week, um, it says that uh, Titania's lawyers blame extremely low blood sugar uh, for her outburst and like the news ticker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny. It's a fun show. It's a fun show. So th- then we meet Jen's family. Uh, yeah. Mark Lynn Baker, I think, plays her father. Mm-hmm. Uh, loving Mark Lynn Baker's like later roles. He's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is a lot of kind of familial concern around her being She-Hulk, but largely they treat it, you know, it's like a normal family dinner with like your, your cousin got a job and Jennifer is now She-Hulk. Like no one kind of remarks on it, I guess because they've seen Hulks in the family before. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a normal. (laughs) And uh, we finally meet, we finally meet Ched. Uh, We still don't know if he's a Walters or a Bano, but we finally meet him. Yeah. And also, uh, Jen's dad is really obsessed with Hawkeye's arrows. Like, does he just leave them everywhere? You know, that's a good question. <laughs> it's like Spider-Man's webs, you know? Are they just hanging everywhere like a mess, you know? Good point. Yeah. And anyway. Uh, you, you do also get the first... Um, this is this real fun bit of characterization for Jen that uh, she talks over people, which is a realistic mm. thing that, like, a lot of people do in real life, but you rarely see it in fiction because it's, you know, it's not great for like capturing dialogue, but yeah, she's someone who talks over people and, you know, tries to get the last word in and that's her way of having conversations. We did get this comment on our decoding TV 
YouTube video last week from someone named Marcus Mm -hmm. who wrote in, quote, I am deeply offended by one aspect of this show, and that is the endorsement of speaking with your hands. By that, I mean striking someone physically to make a point. What? On On several occasions, Tatiana Maslany lashed out with her hands unprovoked to strike Bruce Banner and others. For example, when they discussed the person's new Hulk condition and Bruce paused in a way that the person didn't like, she hit Bruce. Another instance was when the person was talking about Bruce's car, uh, like taking Bruce's car against his will. Uh, she drove into him and then provoked a physical <laughs> fight with him. Anyway, end quote. But uh, I'm yeah, much I, more offended by by her speaking over people and interrupting. I'm sorry. I'm fine with the physical violence. I'm fine with her in, just in, physically striking people unprovoked. But yeah, yeah. I mean, um, like this is. I think what? it is. A, I think. I think the you know the way she strikes Bruce with her hands is like very kind of playful, you know, insistent. And also, um, they're both hit, hulks, so like neither one is really. Yeah, they're both get hulks. Hurt. You know, yeah. I think she kind of knows to what limits she can push him. You know. Yeah. Um, but it's driving not like, the car into him. I, I will say, driving the car into him was probably a little much. Well, I, it's I'm meant give... to be, like, because she's like, it's not like framed as like, "Hey, kids, do this," you know. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm just noting Walters's communication style. You know, she likes driving into people. She likes hitting people with her hands, and she likes oh, talking over people. You know, yeah, That's kind of what you're. But it, it does give the dialogue a little bit more like verisimilitude. Like we're watching these relationships actually play out in, re- in real life. You know, yeah, and she's great in the role too. And uh, we we talked about this last week, but you know, even when she isn't speaking, like there's this moment at the table at dinner where she kind of has her head in her hands and has this just yeah. look where she's like bored to tears. And it really reminded me of again some of my favorite uh, She Hulk comics from the early two thousands. Uh, the run that was written by Dan Slott and. Uh, drawn by uh, Juan Bobillo, I believe, um, which uh, that's another run we may talk about during the rest of the season, where, you know, even though She-Hulk is always or usually depicted as like this, you know, big, strong, you know, muscular woman, there are moments where she just wants to, you know, collapse into a pile and like not be strong or interested or tuned into what's going on sometimes you know she's bored and zones out and i think that's a run that you know through the art really captures these dimensions to her that i think the show brings across really well so it's revealed to she hulk you know she has a scene where she goes into this law office and it's a pretty fun scene there's that scene where like there's this table of white lawyers maniacally laughing i thought that was like a clever way of visually juxtaposing um, you know, the situation she's faced in. And it turns out, obviously, that she's supposed to be head of their new superhero law division, superhuman law division. Mm-hmm. And her first client is going to be Emil Blonsky, the guy who tried to kill her cousin, Bruce Banner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think this show is doing a pretty good job so far, we'll see, of like establishing her dynamic in the law firm and how, you know, it's it's obviously a metaphor for how someone in this situation would feel really different and uh isolated and uh i think obviously a metaphor for uh being a woman in this situation uh that she's in in the show uh but not just a metaphor she is also a a woman in a male-dominated law firm that's true that's true (laughs) that's true and she has i guess it's like exaggerates you know the uh differences that she must feel obviously um yeah but uh, then she has to take on this guy who we then learn is Emil Blonsky. And then it's, you know, you go through this super 
uh, high-tech security thing, uh, a security prison, the Department of Damage Control, I believe mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. right? Which is the fictional department that exists in the Marvel Universe for uh, cleaning up messes that superheroes leave, and Emil Blonsky is in this super high-tech prison. Yeah. I thought the whole scene with Emil Blonsky is pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Tim Roth is super charming, very talented actor, but I love the way he kind of expositions his entire history. He's like, you know me, like uh, <laughs> uh, Russian born, British raised on loan to the end. It's like, oh yeah, you you remembered like he was on loan from the British government and he, mm-hmm. before he got involved in this thing, like, wow, like he just shouldn't have agreed. To, he was doing us a favor. He was doing us a favor, Sidon, you know? Uh, by being on loan, it was he wasn't even like an American to to do this. And um, who, who is us? I'm not this, American. What do you speak for yourself, man? <laughs> and this is how we and this is how we repay him by jailing this man and mm-hmm. injecting him with super serum. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. So anyway, uh, the whole dialogue scene I thought was very funny. He writes haikus. He has seven uh, soulmates that yeah. he made through pen pal program. Like uh, just funny, funny details. So yeah. Any I, thoughts on this whole situation? Yeah, so I like that bit quite a lot. I think Tim Roth is fantastic here. He's one—he's one of the very rare actors who I think, at least in the Marvel universe, fits both what the MCU used to be and what it is now. Because you know, like obviously, a lot of time has passed in between thirteen, fifteen, eighteen years, whatever it is. Um, and he has gone from—you know—we we rewatched the movie, this like uber serious character, to a more jokey version of him. But he approaches it with a completely straight face, and I think that's what also makes it funny. You know, he is playing the same character, giving a very similar performance. Um, in many ways, it reminded me of his role in a movie that's out now, Resurrection, um, this horror movie with Rebecca Hall, where he's really creepy. Oh my god, he gets under my skin in that movie, but. He's doing a similar thing here. He's just saying things that are funnier. So he's still playing a bad guy. Um, I like that this was the first time I've seen ever in Western media someone use namaste as a greeting, which is what it actually is. Over here, for Mm -hmm. some reason, people use it as like a punchline or something like that, uh, or, or as like a way to like end a speech or a sentence. And I know it's like, whatever, that's that's a whole other thing. But like, it's a greeting. It's like saying hello to someone. So good on you, Emil Blonsky, culturally sensitive. Um, <laughs> but sorry, I like this scene a lot. But going back to the previous scene where she's, you know, walking through the law office. Oh, man, like that that was rough. I get what's going on on a story level, but that was like the first time this episode where the the CG, like it just, what, what happened there? Like, mm-hmm. It's it's rougher than usual, and that's already a low bar. And we've talked about mm-hmm. like you know the reasons why all this is happening, and it's very unfortunate, and you know uh, the way like VFX artists are treated. But like in this scene in particular, like the result of all that is especially horrendous because she looks two dimensional. Mm-hmm. Like she looks, she looks like she's not in the same physical yeah. space as the other characters. She yeah. looks. You're talking about when she's walking through the office and like talking yeah. to the camera, right? Yeah, yeah she looks flat. Um. And it's it's so it's uncomfortable to watch because there's no way to you know if you're mildly tuned in to like what's going on in like the real world of filmmaking like there's no way to watch something like this and not think about what the people making this must be going through to yeah. be able to you know get this in under the wire so that becomes very uncomfortable but um, you have to imagine there's very talented people working on the show yeah who probably weren't given enough time to work on it and the the product is not great. 
and then people blame the CG artist, but it's not really their fault, right? Yeah, and um, you know, another thing that like strikes me uh, with all this conversation about like uh, a reason this happens is indecisiveness indecisiveness on the part of the producers, the creators, what have you. And you have this weird disconnect between what Jen Walter's hair looks like and what She-Hulk's hair looks like. Like, when she hulks out, does her hair get, like, chemically straightened? <laughs> like, it's it's so bizarre to look at because, you know, she's designed one way and Jen Walter's is designed another way. Um... I guess you're supposed to assume that. I don't know. Um, but but let's just say, like, I, I prefer the show when it's Tatiana Maslany in human form. Yes. Because yes. it's easier to get a sense of, you know, uh, what she's doing when she's emoting, which is to say she is emoting, um, which is a lot harder for the CG version of her to do. Because um, at times, you know, She-Hulk feels like, Woody from Toy Story in 1995 flopping as he runs around it 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 looks so like it's just so distracting like I'm usually forgiving of this stuff but like this is like bottom of the barrel stuff mhm mhm um uh, but well, coming back to coming back to Blonsky like <laughs> a real living breathing human being Emil Blonsky he's great <laughs> I, w- <laughs> I will say the uh the She-Hulk hair, I think, was referred to earlier in the episode. Like, one of her family members is like, we got to get this hair looking like She-Hulk or something like along those lines, which is very odd to me. I, I, very odd statement. Yeah, one of them, I think her aunt is like a stylist yeah. or something. I don't remember uh, specifically a reference to the hair, but there is. But there are these little references to like, oh, you know, don't don't let the sugar go to your waistline. And, uh, you know, we got to get you looking all pretty or whatever, uh, which is, I think, you know, the, the, stuff the quote is, let's get this hair more like She-Hulk. Is what she says, which is very oh, so they do acknowledge odd, it, okay? Which is a very odd statement, given that, like, I, I guess they're saying like we want to make sure your hair is more curly because it's kind of like what her normal hair is like. But anyway, um, suffi- suffice to say, it. I would agree with you that I prefer Tatiana Maslany's character in the human form, and and uh, like at this point, at this point, they may as well just paint her green. Like I like. I would rather they did like you should pull a Lou Ferrigno. I was going to say, paint, yeah. Who, who? By the way, we we forgot to mention in the Incredible Hulk section, he he shows up in that movie and he's delightful. Yeah, yeah, he's great. He's great. All right. So, anyway, um, the episode ends with her talking to Bruce and making sure he's cool with her taking the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce is in space. Yeah. And then he goes into light speed, and that apparently is hell on the reception. So that's good to know. <laughs> uh, and then she takes the case only to find out that. Sorry, I dropped my phone there. Uh, only to find out that uh, that Abomination has broken out of jail and is fighting in an underground fight club. Now, what we're seeing in the news footage is actually the scene from Shang-Chi where. Uh, Abomination is fighting Wong, I think, mm-hmm, from, mm-hmm. in the Underground Fight Club. And we also learn in Shang-Chi that Wong and the Abomination are kind of like in on it together. Like they're not actually, they don't actually hate each other, right? They are fighting because it's like arrange, something that both of them are aware of this arrangement of them going to fight in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, unclear to me at this point how that's going to tie, like how this will tie into Shang-Chi's storyline. 
Um, but my guess is Wong's going to make an appearance soon and uh, all will be answered. So it opens up a lot of possibilities for uh, where the sh- the scope of the show is going to be. And, you know, if you've been paying attention to all the casting announcements, it's cool. It's kind of like this cavalcade of like all these random MCU people are going to stop by. And that's kind of fun. That's kind of, uh, it should be enjoyable. So uh, yeah, any other never, thoughts? Yep. I'm never going to say no to more Benedict Wong. Indeed. Um, but as far as thoughts, yeah, I, again, like I, as you very well know, I like the Hulk, She-Hulk dynamic, even if they're not like sharing the screen together. Um, you get a sense of their familiarity, their their dynamic, my, my new favorite word when describing them. They have a dynamic dynamic, David. Mm, thank you. Nicely done. Um, and yeah, you know, she talks over her. She talks over him, excuse me. And I think he he's kind of used to it. It seems like like, ah, just doing it again, that kind of thing. Um, because she apparently needs to, you know, in the process of what seems like asking for permission, she just kind of needs to talk through this to like convince herself and convince him uh, that yeah. she's going to take the case. Um, but I like that, you know, the Hulk and Abomination seem to have reconciled in the form of a haiku. Yeah, um, from almost uh, choking him to death to now they uh, he's okay with his cousin working with uh, with uh, him on a court case. You know, it's it's a yeah. the arc of time is long, and you never know where your relationship are going to lead. That's that's really the moral <laughs> of this episode. So. Yeah, as as rough as I may have found like the first half, and as difficult as it is to look at. She Hulk at times, like it's you CG know, wise, CG wise, CG wise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's it's it's. I'm sorry, man. Like I'm I'm so annoyed by this because sometimes like her hands look really realistic, but the rest of her looks like like rubber. And mm-hmm. do you have like different a, a different people with more time and like healthcare benefits working on the hands, <laughs> whereas it's like freelancers working on the face? I need to know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One day the truth will come out. I hope, but it's slowly. You should point out, out, by the way, that there there are post credit scenes every single week on yeah. the show. We didn't actually talk about last week's post credits, but it's basically her wanting to figure out if uh, Steve Rogers was a virgin, which was confirmed mm-hmm. he's not. Uh, and by the way, the thing that was notable to me about that scene is, I guess, like people don't know about Steve Rogers like living out his life in the United States after Endgame, right? That's kind of because if they knew about yeah. it, they would know he's not a virgin, right? Because mm-hmm. he's presumably has a life with peggy and uh you know if it's Agent this Carter. timeline or if it's this timeline whatever, right we don't really yeah in this post credit scenes we see uh sea hulk uh doing a bunch of household chores using her newfound strength uh which is funny yeah and you know chad talking about how even though he doesn't know what 4k is he knows you need it <laughs> <laughs> so true so true oh chad all right classic chad all right well, I think that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of Decoding TV, covering She-Hulk. But we hope you've enjoyed listening to this conversation again. Next week, it's going to be She-Hulk episode three. And we are also going to cover uh, the sensational She-Hulk by John Byrne, volume one. Uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. Sedanta's getting out the Cheetos again. That's what Ooh, that noise I'm is. Thank, thank you for that. Uh, he is Sedanta Laka. Find him on Twitter at Sedanta Laka. I'm David Chen. Find me on Twitter at Dave Chensky. Support this podcast at decodingtv.com. Thanks to everyone who makes the show possible. We'll see you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 